0: Welcome to The Spectacular Century, conversations about 19th century performance and visual culture. I'm Kate Holmes. I'm a performance historian based out of the University of Exeter.
1: I'm Jim Davis and I'm a theatre historian based at the
0: University of Warwick. I'm Kate Newey. I'm a theatre historian at the University of Exeter. I'm Patricia Smith and I'm an art historian working at the University of Warwick. And we're part of an AHRC project working on theatre and visual culture in the long 19th century. So, what are we going to be talking about? I'll be having a conversation with Jim Davis about pantomime. We'll be roaming from the 18th century street theatre of Commedia dell'arte into the 21st century pop culture of pantomime and thinking about why it's still important. People again
1: as with melodrama often ask why take pantomime seriously. You know it's it's a popular entertainment these days at Christmas And we have a sort of notion of what it is like in the early 21st century, which is actually quite different from pantomime's origins several hundred years ago. Pantomime is one of those forms that has changed enormously over time. And so I think part of our discussion may be about how pantomime originated and where it came from. And our starting point for that would be an Italian form of entertainment known as the Commedia dell'arte, famous for its characters of sort of Harlequin, Columbine, Pantalone and so forth, and the way in which the Commedia, through its adaptation into a sort of English form of entertainment from the late 17th century onwards, gradually became the basis for early English pantomime.
0: The interesting thing about that is that the commedia, the Italian commedia, was a kind of often an improvised performance or improvised around certain set scripts or what they called lazzi, the the sort of patterns or situations that, that you improvised around with characters. And I think we still, there are remnants of that still in today's pantomime, the way that the pantomime dame will improvise with whatever audience is in front of of her him him on that particular performance moment you know afternoon or evening but what what's really interesting I think about pantomime and there are a couple of reasons why we might study it seriously as scholars Uh, one is that it's really key economically to the theatre industry I mean, that's probably not what we'll go on to talk a lot about. But there's a lot of evidence in the 19th century, and certainly we found during the um, kind of global pandemic of of COVID-19 and the lockdowns and so on, that a lot of theatres rely on the box office from the annual pantomime to subsidise a lot of their other less profitable productions and performances throughout the year and that's a pattern that goes right back to the origins or the, the first kind of development of pantomime in in British theatres in the 18th century but the economic thing is probably the less interesting thing for us today I mean the other thing that I think is really interesting is this sort of improvisatory theatre was a really clever way of getting satire political commentary topical jokes in under the radar of state censorship of the theatre in Britain, which obviously, you know, the theatre has been censored in Britain from 1737 to 1968. And improvised theatre, comedy, non-textual theatre, you know, this is not dramatic literature we're talking about, it was much difficult, more difficult to censor, much more difficult to ban,
1: Absolutely, and in in effect, I mean, outstanding pantomime performers like Grimaldi, and I'll say a little bit about who Grimaldi was, very much enabled a more satirical, a more subversive type Mm. of humour. Joe Grimaldi created the role of clown in pantomime when pantomime was still taking the form of a Harlequinade with a Harlequin and Columbine and Pantalone character involved as well. And Grimaldi just was an amazing improvisatory clown. He could could transform one object into another. He could improvise with objects. He could satirise fashion. He could satirise current topical events in various ways. And he created this extraordinary clown makeup so that his face would be clear to the audience sitting right at the back of the galleries in these large theatres in which he performed. So he also had a sort of impact on clown makeup as well. But so in is th-
0: it is it Grimaldi who invented the kind of white-faced clown then?
1: I don't know if he invented the white-faced clown, but mm. he certainly was one of the early influences mm. on clown makeup I don't I don't think Mm. it was white face so much as as that sort of large 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 eyes so that that can then impact on audiences as well because he was largely a silent performer Mm. he he sang songs occasionally They were rude songs and he well (laughs) not always rude actually well you
0: could you could you could understand them as
1: rude you could yes (laughs) and um he also would uttered the odd word, but not not more than that very yeah, often. Yeah. But he was incredibly popular, so that if we're looking for a moment, two moments possibly where pantomime had amazing central performers who who changed its nature, we'd have to go to the, back to the eighteenth century and just say something about John Rich who played Harlequin and made Harlequin this central character in the pantomime entertainment that actually took place both at Christmas and Easter and was very, very popular with audiences. And then Grimaldi, at the very beginning of the 19th century, mm. creating this clown figure who takes over from the Harlequin figure of Rich and m- makes the central figure in pantomime, this improvisatory
0: clown. Yeah, uh, I mean the, th- the connection though, there is a connection between Rich and Grimaldi, which is that Rich was, was a dancer primarily and Grimaldi was, as you say, a silent performer. He was a very physical performer, wasn't he? I mean this was his, in a sense, his, his not downfall, but, but certainly he, he put the antics, as they called them, that the, he put through the sort of gymnastic um, antics, the, the athletic antics, really wrecked Grimaldi's body. And he, you know, stories of his retirement where he could hardly stand. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't very old. But if we go right back to John Rich, um, who uh, was a dancer mostly, and we go back to the sort of structure of pantomime that he adapted and made popular. When you talk about the Harlequinade, that came at the end of the pantomime. But what we think of as the pantomime now was what in the 18th and 19th century was called the opening. And it was a much shorter piece, which usually took, it was a wonderful mashup of a fairy tale or a folk tale and topical commentary. All the
1: classics, of course, as all well the, as yeah, oh, all the, classics, the Arabian Nights. Yes,
0: yeah, so the Arabian Nights, the Grimm's folk tales when they started to be published in the beginning of the 19th century, classic, uh, you know, fables and so on, or made-up fables. And we have this quite short opening which sets up a problem. You know, there's, there's... there's ill feeling in parliament or there's some kind of discord on earth and the fairies have to come and sort it out and that's the sort of opening story and then all of those characters transform into the harlequinade characters don't they and so that moment of transformation was really important.
1: It's absolutely uh, central to the early pantomime and of course one of the factors here is Harlequin getting very often what was called a magic bat, which was also called a slapstick. So our word slapstick, of course, uh, that we use in other circumstances today, was originally the magic wand or stick or bat that yeah. Harlequin So it's not was the given. animal
0: bat. This isn't an animal. This isn't like a vampire bat. This is the stick or the wand, yeah, right? Of yeah. course, yes. <laughs> yes. I always used to get confused about the magic bat. I wondered whether it was a you know um, an animal. No. <laughs> But yeah, and he used to use the wand, like a fairy wand really, to tap something and it would transform into something else, wouldn't it? Really clever stage technology.
1: Well, you're also bringing in something we might talk a little bit about later, which is how important transformation was to Mm. pantomime and still is to pantomime but in different circumstances. But we may need to sketch in a bit more background before we we look at modern transformation. Well, the
0: thing is about the way, you know, the modern pantomime that, that... People, and hopefully people listening to this, have been to a pantomime. That was the opening. But I think, and there's really very little of the Harlequinade. but you have your clown character. It's, you know, it's wishy-washy or buttons. Or, or it can be the
1: dame as well. Or the dame
0: can be the clown. Yeah, that's true, yeah. So that clowning is still there. That sense of, as you say, sort of improvised, funny, well, slapstick yeah. physical comedy and
1: and latsy, gags and so, gags, on. Yeah. absolutely,
0: yeah, yeah, routines. The cream pie in the face, you think about that, that's mm-hmm. a commedia routine, if you like, or a lutzy. yeah, yeah, that's a gag that is still there.
1: And of course, you also increasingly got in pantomime until it became too expensive for the stage management team to clear up what was called the slop scenes in a kitchen or where people are decorating, where you know, you just make a a dreadful mess all over. So you the throw place. buckets of water, and throw over buckets people, of water, yeah, yeah. And buckets of paint.
0: That's still a standard scene in some versions of Aladdin, isn't it? When they're in the laundry, because oh, yeah. isn't the story that Aladdin's mother is she's a laundress, she's a washerwoman, and they're in the laundry and they're sort of throwing buckets of water. I, I have seen in Aladdin where they use real water and mm. soap suds and so on. I mean, I don't, I don't think they're real soap suds. It's probably some sort of special stage of technology for making foam quickly. It usually comes at the end of the first half, so that they can bring the curtain down and use the interval to clear the stage, <laughs> clean it up. Which well, yeah. is interesting,
1: insofar as um, you know. The point I, I was making that yeah. sometimes now people don't have those scenes because yeah. of the stage management costs. But it's it's the same with musical accompaniment to pantomime. Music has always accompanied pantomime mm. from from its uh, sort of beginnings in in this country. But whereas say when I first went to pantomime in the 1950s, you would have an orchestra, mm. and every time a villain appeared or um, whatever, you'd have a clash of the cymbals or a drum roll. Now, often, there's not enough money for anything like that, so it's recorded music is being used, which is a is, is a real pity, because mm. in a sense, that that sort of live quality of musical accompaniment mm, is, mm. is really important, and I think it... I'm really reflecting, I realise, a generational factor, which is pantomime was is never so good now as it was in my youth, and you know and that's to been going on for two hundred years.
0: Exactly, that's that's what journalists and historians said in the nineteenth century yeah, about them. Yeah. There, there's something about pantomime and its connection with childhood and youth that that brings out the nostalgic in people who talk about it. They they think, oh yes, pantomime's never as good as it used to be. But when you talk about music, one of the things that has survived from I guess the 18th century form of pantomime right through to the present is that nowadays you know often the lead the hero and heroine are played by pop stars or young television celebrities and so on they're 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 always young Um, and they sing well-known modern pop songs or you know stuff that's in the news or has been um, and that is really something that has survived right from the 18th century, right from the 1700s, when pantomime first is sort of in the English theatres. It's always about what's going on now, isn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. And, I, I mean, I, again, I think with sort of musical music and pantomime, mm. I mean, you can go back to... Garrick's pantomime, Harlequin's invasion, where the popular military song "Hearts of Oak" first. was So, sung when's Garrick? This is
0: David Garrick, is David isn't Garrick, it?
1: the yeah. theatre yeah. manager and yeah, actor.
0: Yeah, and he, but he was a great Shakespearean actor. What's he doing with pantomime? Well,
1: he, he didn't like pantomime, <laughs> but he put pantomime on because it made money, as we were saying so, earlier.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so he's that's he's working in the late sort of the seventeen eighty seventeen
1: seventies. It'd it? be 1760s to seventies. Oh, yeah, on pantomime. So. Then, so yeah
0: just sort of 30 years after 30 or 40 years after John Rich is yeah. kind of inventing the form for the English audience well I
1: think he's in competition with Rich to ah. begin with as well You know, Rich is bringing in the money so if Jury Lane under Garrick is going to bring in the money it's they got to, to do, do pantomime. pantomime as well.
0: So it's money and, and rivalry I mean and again rivalry, we yeah. see that today when when um, the announcements come out about who's doing which pantomime and what star they've got playing which role, there's this kind of rivalry and competition, isn't there? You know, who have we got to play the evil Akabonaza?
1: Absolutely. uh, Can I say also, I suppose one of the things we we need to think about is how do we get from Rich and uh, Grimaldi and the Harlequinade in pantomime to pantomime today, there's a there's a whole sort of development, which I know you've been doing work on, yeah, in the yeah. way that Victorian pantomime mm. gradually mm. transformed the nature of pantomime yeah. and led to, in many ways, the form we know today.
0: Yeah, I think the form we know today emerges, doesn't it, in the, the sort of late 1800s, oh, uh, yeah. you know, with with the, there was this extraordinary producer called Augustus Harris who ran Drury, Theatre or Drury Lane. And he set up these huge, spectacular pantomimes that pretty much took away the Harlequinade ending, although you still have what was known as the comic business ending.
1: Yeah, you'd still have the
0: Harlequinade
1: characters Mm. in the comic business, but most of the audience had gone to the railway stations to make their way home while that was being performed. Well, because
0: pantomimes, and they still are, very long. So what happens? Yeah, so we we start, as you say, with rich... Seeing an opportunity to take this popular Italian continental form and turn it into something for his English audience, and he he doesn't he joins together satire and topical commentary in the opening, and then brings in these characters. and I think your description of Grimaldi as the clown is still within the Commedia dell'arte tradition, isn't it? It's still within the Harlequin tradition. And then we have Columbine, who's the heroine, often dressed like a fairy, really and um, Harlequin, who's the young lover, and the clown, and Pantalone, or Pantalone, who's the crotchety old father. And, And the structure of the Harlequinade is fairly simple, generally, in pantomime, isn't it? It's that... Well, go on. Yeah. Well, I was
1: going to say it's a chase. Yes. It's a chase where basically Harlequin's trying to get away with C- Columbine and Pantalone and Clown are usually chasing. yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's not a, it's that part of the pantomime wasn't structured so much as a, a complicated plot. It's a, it's a chase yeah. scenario where mm. after going through a number of gags, often a number of different scenes with mm. different locations, often local locations. Yes. At the end of it all, Harlequin gets his girl, as it were. And he
0: also generally gets the treasure or the magic object. Absolutely. You know, he, you talked about the magic bat, but they might be searching for the golden apple or the, the magic fleece uh, that's going to solve the problems of the earth. So at the end of the pantomime, there can be this very cosy, almost moralistic ending about, well, now it all is peace and harmony. So we've gone through all this chaos to get to harmony. But you could argue also after
1: this, in the mid-Victorian period, pantomime itself was quite chaotic. Yes. I I mean, I'm thinking of the popular pantomimes of the 50s, 60s. Already the extravaganza, which is a popular form of pantomime-like entertainment, which came into existence from around the 1830s to 1840s onwards, had brought in things like the pun. And the pun, of course, is still central to pantomime today. The word to the play, yeah. But That's
0: a really Victorian form of humour, it, that it's, we still have? It's
1: still, um, mm. it's still here today yeah, in, in, yeah. in modern pantomime. But I was also going to say that with the anarchic quality of pantomime, there were so many different plots, stories, lack of stories even, mm. um, that it's almost like a sort of modern comedy show like the Monty Python show where nothing leads to anything else. And I'm thinking in particular of the influence of pantomime on people like John Ruskin, but also Lewis Carroll. And Alice in Wonderland, in my view, when Alice through the Looking Glass, could not have been written by anybody other than somebody who was innately um, informed by, familiar with the Victorian pantomime. Already in pantomimes, playing cards, chess pieces were characters way before either... Carol wrote about them in the Alice books or Tenniel drew them. You know, pantomime. And the big heads of pantomime that uh, you also find in the Tenniel illustrations. Uh, And the big head is something that started with the Harlequinade. when, When people were transformed on stage... The big head was placed on some characters, and um, the big heads of 19th century pantomime you'll find in Thackeray's children's stories, in Alice in Wonderland, and so we on. You should probably
0: explain what the big heads are. Yes, they, they're yeah. kind of big, made out of papier-mâché, large, oval, I think, as far as I understand oval kind of hollow forms that sat on top of people's shoulders and covered their heads. So they were these. And then they were painted often in very satirical... I mean, there there are examples of pantomimes where the big heads of the the characters were painted to satirise current politicians. Um, And then the transformation scene then allowed those heads to either come off or be put on, depending which way round they were doing the transformation. So very quickly, one character transforms into another. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I, I was going to say also, we should, we should probably move on to the transformations of the mid-19th century in to, uh, into the present day, where the transformation is less about people and about the most extraordinary scenery yeah. transforming and, into another form. And this
0: is what starts to happen, doesn't it, in the in the mid-19th century, as you're saying, in the 1850s and 1860s, that we get this emphasis on spectacular pantomime. So again, pantomimes that have huge choruses of, say, 20 children, as you say, all dressed as playing cards or chess pieces or... <laughs> Amazons or um, Little Flowers or, you know, all uh, this kind of fancy dress sort of chorus of children and then often older performers, the chorus girls, the, the ballet dancers of the period. And so there's this huge emphasis, growing emphasis in the mid-19th century on spectacle on stage, isn't there?
1: And this perhaps takes us back again to Augustus Harris's pantomimes and the uh, extraordinary spectacle of those pantomimes. It's known that Harris, for an average jewelry lane pantomime in the 1880s and 1890s, needed to employ up to 800 people both on stage and off to make the pantomime happen. And we're talking sometimes of uh, spectacle scenes with 400 performers yeah, it's extraordinary. On stage. And
0: it takes us right back to the kind of economic, industrial aspect of pantomime, doesn't it? Well, Which we don't think about when we see those beautiful, beautiful scenes on the stage.
1: And I think also when we get onto Harris and the spectacle, we also need to think about the principal boys, the principal girls, the dame roles, because mm. in uh, and even the supernatural roles in pantomime. Mm. Because as we narrow down through Jewelry Dame pantomimes to the Jack and the Beanstalk, Cinderella, Dick Whittington, Mother Goose, a series of the series of stories we're still familiar with yes. today as the main basis of pantomime, we also find the consolidation of the dame the principal boy, girl, uh, and also the cross-gender performance. Yes, of yes. Uh, The principal boy played by a woman, the dame played by a man, mm. and most famously, at Rory Lane, of course, by Dan Lino, mm. the musical mm. artist and comedian, mm. who in many ways can be seen as creating the modern pantomime dame. Yes,
0: yeah. Cross-dressing in pantomime was a thing throughout its history, I think, wasn't it? And, you know, there's evidence that some Commedia dell'arte troops, for example, were all male, and they cross-dressed the female roles. Some had female performers. And we've got evidence of a young woman playing the principal boy, the hero, as early as the 1820s or 1830s, I well, think. Well,
1: for instance, uh, in the 1820s at uh, Drury Lane, one mm. of the first Jack of the Beanstalks, as Pot of a was performed. A woman played Jack... But when it came to climbing the beanstalk, a substitute was brought in, a young boy off the streets who was given (laughs) the the part of just climbing Climbing. the beanstalk as Jack. Um, So, yes, you had female performers playing male Mm. roles. And even, of course, the Mother Goose pantomime that brought Grimaldi to fame Mm. uh, had a male performer playing Mother Goose, just as, of course, at the end of the century, Dan Lino's great role... ...was Mother Goose. Yes.
0: Yeah, and I think this cross-dressing... ...the, the other version of cross-dressing is also the the female britches role... ...and we've mentioned extravaganza as a, as an influence on pantomime... ...this new form that emerges in the 1820s... ...and Eliza Vestris was a well-known singer and performer... ...who often played male roles in britches... I ...and mean, she had great legs apparently... And so the extravaganza really focused on it. It was partly built around Vestri's, Elasa Vestri's own skills. And so that sense of the britcher's role feeds into the the kind of establishment of the, the principal boy played by a girl. So cross-dressing has always been a feature of this rough, demotic form of improvisatory physical theatre that really is what pantomime is, isn't well, it?
1: I think it sort of... And it raises a number of questions because, mm. for instance, in the Jury Lane period, the principal boy looked very much like a woman in male dress. And the the whole figure of the principal boy was quite clearly female. What's interesting is that, um, and we always have to stress, this is not a pantomime. When Peter Pan came along Mm. in the early 20th century, um, using a much more androgynous uh, type of female performer, so the principal boys became more androgynous yes. in the 20th century post-Peter yes. Pan. But yes. let me just totally totally emphasise that Peter Pan is not a pantomime <laughs> because people often think it is and yes. it's not. But yeah, I, I was yeah. going to say the other issue around this type of performance is, of course, the principal boy performed by a woman mm. has largely disappeared from pantomime I know, today. I
0: think it's, I think that, I mean, I'm not one of these people that kind of go, oh, pantomime isn't as good as it used to be and they should never change it. But I do mourn the loss of the principal boy played by a young woman. I think that, well, again, the absolutely basic economic Fact is that just means it's a set of roles less available to women, and there are fewer roles for women in the theatre anyway. But well, what about but it also, then? Well, hang on. But it also it also takes away from a female performer the chance to enact young male heroism as a woman playing a man, not trying to look like a man. This is not. In, it, it's a it's a very odd kind of double double performance this isn't a woman trying to be a man we know that this is a woman playing a, you know, a young woman playing a young man but there aren't many roles written for women female characters that have the daring do and the let's go and solve the problem well, you know also, be the hero
1: also it the thigh slapping
0: and the thigh <laughs> <laughs> yes the thigh slapping and so on I mean but that's all part of the, the sense of activity and agency that we get with the principal boy, yeah. the hero ro- role, So and I think it's really female performers are losing opportunities to play that kind of role until we write female characters that have that kind of activity and agency. You know, well,
1: what about what about men playing sort of menopausal, yeah, the uh, older women, spinsters, yeah. Yeah. and so on?
0: Yeah, that.
1: Is you know still a highlight of pa- mm, pantomime the mm, pantomime dame yeah. and I mean some uh, pantomime performers Chris Harris the late Chris Harris used to say a pantomime dame is a man in a dress mm. full stop yes and that's just what well, it is the
0: current current really well known dame at the Hackney Empire Clive Rowe and I've interviewed both Clive and Chris there's a video somewhere of it on YouTube both of them say. We're not in drag, we're men in frocks. And, and that's really important to their sense of what it is to play the dame. And I think that's always been the case. Although Dan Leno was thought to be a very realistic older woman. but a lot of the time the dame, the dame is an equivoc- is, a, is a, an equivocal character. There's a, the dame is both a very affectionate portrait of a maternal mother kind of figure, you know, mother goose. Um, Aladdin's mother in uh, The Widow Twanky in, in Aladdin. But I think she's also a figure of mockery and fun. And there's a... The kind of egghead scholar in me kind of goes, oh, it's a very misogynist view of a, a menopausal, you know, an older woman and how... And often the dame is mocked for lusting after young men, for example, you know, and, and so there's that. But yet when you're actually watching the performance the dame and this is what chris harris always says the dame is the connection to the audience
1: well the dame i mean it's interesting because chris harris also wrote and directed yes. the pantomimes he played the dame in and i've seen We should twice. just
0: say to listeners he he was he died a few years ago but he was the dame at the theater royal bath and did a very traditional pantomime with a young woman playing the principal boy as well
1: well, and uh, Clive Rowe, who I've also seen in the Hackney yes. Empire, I think uh, is a fantastic yes. pantomime dame. And I, yes. I I think it's one of those sort of difficult questions. Um, mm. People who haven't been reared with the British pantomime tradition often find the dame offensive or problematic. Mm. I think mm. having sort of... Encountered pantomime dames since the early 1950s, which shows how old I am. <laughs> I've sort of somehow got used to men in dresses, yes, um, yes. <laughs> dominating Christmas entertainment.
0: Well, <laughs> you know that. I mean, we, 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 we know that the English tradition is often seen by the rest of the world as as quite curious. You know, I mean, in the Renaissance, in the in the 16th and 17th centuries, the, the time of Shakespeare women were not permitted to perform on the public stage. So we have this long tradition of young men playing women and older men playing women too, if you think about some of the older female roles in Shakespeare. It was often seen in in the rest of Europe as this weird English kind of, well, I don't know quite what the word is, curiosity. (laughs) can,
1: Can we also say something quickly about some of the other characters mm, in yeah, pantomime before yeah. we sort of wrap up. And I, I was thinking two two things about pantomime. One is that a lot of pantomime performers Come from other media yes. and always have music hall in terms of uh, Augustus Harris's pantomime today. In, it's in the television, 19th century, yeah. it can even be the local weatherman or woman. You know, there's, there's the local celebrities playing roles. But we've also got to bear in mind there's the villain role, there's the supernatural, there's the fairy godmother role, there's the demon king role, and traditions such as if you're playing a goodie in pantomime, you come on the right side of the stage. But if you're playing a baddie, you must come from the left, and so on. So there's <laughs> there's those really sorts of traditions. Yes. And then, of course, there's what are called the skin roles, the animal yes. roles, where people are playing, or two people are playing a cow. Or well,
0: whatever. I have played the back end of a cow in my youth theatre days. And actually, my mother was a performer in the 50s and was, in started in pantomime. Her, her career as an actress started in pantomime, and I suspect... I've been on stage in utero as the fairy godmother. (laughs) But yeah, um, I mean, the interesting thing about the skin rolls is that in the 19th century, there were several families. The Vokes family were famous for being the specialists in the skin rolls. And again, like Grimaldi and other clowns, they were extraordinary athletes and gymnasts, weren't they?
1: Well, there's another performer, George Conquest, who was associated Uh, with South London and East London theatres, who played characters like spiders, crabs, you know, most extraordinary range of
0: sort of creatures. And his wife, I think, ran a kind of training school for young dancers. Um, We're going to talk about dance and moving body in another podcast so we might come back to that but I think one of the really interesting things about Victorian pantomime pantomime in the 19th century was as you say that the skills that it brought in and the training and the kind of the way that concert dance ballet emerges partly from pantomime Yes, pantomime
1: is a is a really all encompassing form, and i, I mean it 's a hybrid form,
0: mm. but somehow
1: it always seems to continue to exist, yes, but always in a form that adapts to each new age
0: and, and you asked earlier about how would we track the change of pantomime from John Rich doing his mime of the egg that the chicken hatching out of the egg this is what he was famous for a, a mime of of the the, the the egg changing into the chicken, so we have transformation from the very start, and how we track that from John Rich in the early 1700s through to the 21st century. And the interesting thing is that we all know what a pantomime is, but to pin it down as this is what's in a pantomime is different at, at any specified historical moment, isn't it? Oh. Yeah, it's still true. pantomime. <laughs> but,
1: and the satire and topical illusions keep it fresh yes. because in a sense and of course the choice of music and so on, it's contemporary. So there's always a contemporary feel to pantomime yeah. while there's also a tradition being played out. And of course we see pantomime today as family entertainment. Mm. It wasn't always, no. but since roughly the mid-19th century, it was a family form. And often more vulgar than it should have been perhaps yes yes (laughs) yes the the, the jokes were there for the dad yeah yeah well
0: a friend of mine who Mm. writes his village pantomime when I first started working on pantomime said to me oh Kate you've you've just got to go for the knob jokes (laughs) (laughs) which is what Grimaldi with his red hot poker you know I kind of think well (laughs) the scholar in me is thinking that's a phallic symbol (laughs) but I mean I think the interesting thing about pantomime is that it starts as an entertainment that goes on at any time of the year then it becomes a Christmas and Easter and now it and then it then then it was always opening on Boxing Day and now pantomimes open in early December don't they and but there is something about the pantomime as a Saturnalia as a turning upside down of the world which means that this sort of midwinter jollity and fun and laughter and light in the middle of the darkest coldest time of the year perhaps that's the perhaps that's the, the th- common thread <laughs> to well, kind of also i
1: think it's the only theatrical form practically today where you can still engage where the audience can shout things out, where children can sort of wander about, where prior to health and safety you could throw sweets from a stage at the children (laughs) and so on. As an entertainment, it doesn't require a sort of holy or sanctified atmosphere within the theatre space. It's a space that belongs to everybody and everybody engages and interacts with each other in it.
0: This podcast is supported by the University of Exeter Drama Department and the Arts and Humanities Research Council.